is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. Well, folks, are you awake after that? That was the wonderful Jane Eaglin. And this is a name that conjures up several images for me. There is the dramatic diva with a voice that soars, a voice that is luxurious. It has at once the essence of silk and the strength of the ocean surf. A dramatic soprano that was born to take on the roles of Brunhilde and Isolde and let them come alive through the freedom and strength of her God-given voice. And then there is the Jane Eaglin, who is the last from Lincolnshire, England. The woman who was born into a salt-of-the-earth family and showed her first musical prowess on the piano. That is the Jane who loves wrestling and the singer Meatloaf. She would listen to his music when warming up before a performance. The girl has good taste, and she's keeping it real. As a singer, I continually ask myself, what is it that we want from a human voice on the operatic stage? Well, I had the good fortune to be working in a production of Wagner's Die Valkyrie at Scottish Opera in the early 90s. Jane Eaglin was singing Brunhilde. It was the early days of her rising career, and she wielded her sword and sang Hoya to Hose as if she was singing an intricate Mozart aria with ease and linear passion. She could sing Wagner's marked trills, as you heard, without the labored effort in the sound, which can often be the hallmark of other divas who perhaps have sung too much Wagner for too long. I was held in rapture by a burnished quality in the lower and middle voice of hers. That is the quality that I want to hear on the operatic stage. But more than that, she possessed an inner knowing of the woman she was portraying. Brynhilde was a goddess who was remarkable, and the human goddess in Jane Eaglin on stage was soon to make history with that sound on every major international operatic stage in the world. There is a section at the end of Act Two, Scene Two of Die Valkyrie, where Brynhilde addresses the fate of Sigmund singing Weh mein Welsung, im höchsten Leid muss dich treulos dich treule verlassen. I would linger in the wings at Scottish Opera until Jane had sung that line. There was passion and warmth in the phrase that she produced that was a transparent sign of her honesty in making music. It was achingly real, without pretense, the mark of one who lived and felt her music-making to the core. Even with her soft singing, we could feel that vibration through the floorboards. It was simply unforgettable. Those are the images of Jane Eaglin in my mind, and I have her with me today on Center Stage. So, wow. Good morning, Jane, and welcome to Center Stage. I am thrilled to finally have you here. Good morning. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. I'm, I'm blushing at those words from you. It's, uh, it's lovely to reminisce myself a little bit about those days, the, they, the first Brynhilde I did. That really was, wasn't it? I it mean, there, was. there was so much going on for you at that time, too, wasn't there? I mean, you were, you were singing in, in Austria. Uh, I think you were singing at, in, um, in Vienna. You had just been working at ENO and, um, and then John Malcheri with this first ring. In fact, it was the the landmark Richard Jones production. That's correct. Yes, um, 
I know Rheingold was done, which didn't involve me, which was done, I think, the year before. Um, and unfortunately, they were never able to finish it with Siegfried and Gutter Demerung. Um, although I know Richard Jones did do productions at Covent Garden, which didn't involve me. But it was, it was very interesting. And, and what was great about it was we had, I think, literally eight weeks to rehearse. Um, and so for my first Brunhilde, it was nice to have that amount of time to, to really sort mm. of solidify and make sure that, you know, I had the stamina and that everything was feeling good. And do you remember all the Valkyries on stilts? I do remember them on stilts. And I remember, I think it was Newcastle, that the stage was raked. It had a little tilt on it. And I remember part of the staging was that I had to sort of collapse at the front of the stage. um, And the Valkyries walked all around me. And and I could really feel the skirts of these ladies on, well, you know, these ladies on stilts. It was was something. (laughs) They were unbelievable. I remember they rehearsed for weeks and weeks. They must have had some personal insurance going with that opera house. I, I don't know that I could have taken that job as a Valkyrie and really had, you know, the guts to get up on stilts and sing. But they were remarkable. And wasn't it incredible the presence they had, Jane? Oh, it was phenomenal. I mean, it really was quite an incredible sight. And um, what was difficult for some of them, I know a couple of them were very scared of them, and it took a very long time. But what was hard for them was that they all basically ended up being the same size. So some of the ladies were a little shorter. They had very tall stilts, and the taller ones weren't quite as big. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm terrified of heights, so I couldn't have done it. But, but some of them were, and they, you know, they, they worked through it and did an incredible job. And so did you. You were amazing in that role. I remember John Malcherry was conducting, um, and you also worked with him in the Norma you did at Scottish Opera. Yes, I, I worked with him many times, and lots of my sort of first roles in original language with Scottish Opera, because I'd been on contract with ENO, English National Opera, for quite some time, uh, where everything was in English. And so it was nice to, to have a company where I could go and do some roles for the first time in the original language. I did my first Donna Anna there, mm. first Brynhilde, first Norma. I did Fjordaligi there, and of all things, I did Mimi, too. Um, so it was, you know, it was a really great place to have the time to work on these roles that would eventually, you know, become part of my stable, really. Wow. Wow. I love you did Mimi. I actually did not know that. <laughs> I was very young and, you know, it was uh, it, it was fine. It was, uh, again, John Macherry wanted a bigger voice, I think, for the, for the role. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was fun to do. Oh, wow. Wow. So um, I've just got to ask this right off the bat. Okay, where does meatloaf come into all of this? And uh, don't get me wrong, I love meatloaf. And I think he brings an operatic presence to whatever he does. But tell me about your relationship to his music. Well, I, I sort of came to it a little later. I, I know friends of mine that were fans, fans of his in college. I wasn't sort of so into it at that point. I think I was too busy figuring out what opera was at that time. Um, but I, I just kind of always love performers that really perform and really give of their all and, and sort of have a sort of visceral um, voice in, in lots of different ways. You know, So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be operatic. And, and I always felt with Meatloaf that he really put out a passion and and kind of drama into his, his uh, singing. And I just really was also drawn to the music. The, the style of the songs that he would sing were quite operatic and, and used a lot of uh, strings and a lot of orchestra uh, arrangements and so on. Um, so yeah. I've just always been a fan, and I, I like to have a tape that I 
don't have now, but I, I have a tape of various songs of some of Whitney Houston, who I was also a, a big fan of, and Meatloaf. And when I was sort of showering before I'd go into the theatre, I'd sing along to this uh, this tape, and that was how I'd warm up. So I warmed up to Meatloaf. Um, I and this, I was actually doing a performance of, of Isolde at the Met, uh, and the production was very bright. It was very bright on stage and threw back a lot of light into the audience. And uh, basically, Zolder doesn't stop singing for about an hour and a half, but then she does stop for a little while and stands there while King Mark comes on and tells her how horrible she is. Um, and so I was standing uh, on stage looking out to the audience, and I saw Jim Steinman, who is the person who wrote all Meatloaf's songs. And I saw him sitting in the audience, and he had long gray hair and a black T-shirt with a white skull and crossbones on. And I... I'm standing there as older thinking, oh, my goodness, that's Jim Steinman. So when I came <laughs> off at the interval, I asked somebody who was working at the mess, I said, could you do me a favor and go and find this gentleman and ask him if he would possibly come around and meet me afterwards because I'm a big fan of his. So the guy from the Met went and found him, and, and afterwards Jim Steinman said he thought he was going to be asked to leave because he was wearing a Skull and Crossbones T-shirt <laughs> at the Met. Um, but of course he wasn't, and uh, this gentleman said to him, you know, um, Miss Eva is a big fan of yours, and I just wonder if you, you know, she wonders if you might go around and say hello to her after the performance, and he said, oh, of course. So when it was over... Uh, the, the man from the Met went and met him and brought him to my dressing room. And my husband said it was extremely funny because we both kind of stood there going, gosh, I'm a really big fan of yours. And, <laughs> and oh, my gosh, it's so amazing to meet you. And, and I said to him, I listened to, to your music before I sing. And he said, well, that's funny because I listen to Wagner before I, conduct, uh, before I compose. And, you know, wow. he said that from being very young, he would listen to you know, rock around the clock or something, some, some, you know, pop, whatever, rock music, and then he would just tune the, change the dial on the radio, and it would be Wagner. And it never occurred to him there was any difference. As far as he was concerned, it was just music. Wow. And he said, you know, I write the things I write because I can't write the rig, and that's what I'd love to have done. Um, but so much of his obvious, obvious passion for, you know, big, romantic, orchestral and, and vocal music comes across in the music that he writes. So it was um, it was a very interesting meeting. <laughs> That's unbelievable. And thanks to the production and the light out into the audience, you could actually spot him. Yeah, that is yeah. Incredible. I mean, I could literally see pretty much everybody that was sitting in the in the stalls of the orchestra, <laughs> uh, the orchestra and the mat. It was so bright. So couldn't I, do it when you were concentrating on singing, but <laughs> of course. But I love this story. This is so real. And he must have been a fan of yours. I mean, I, I don't know. I think he, he, obviously, he knew I was. He was coming to see the, the Tristan and, and so on, was a, a big Wagner fan, most definitely. Um, so, But uh, it was just so funny that when we met, that we both had this sort of slightly nervous and shaky disposition <laughs> going on. <laughs> oh, I love this. I love this. The prima donna is, is loving this man, man in the audience with the skull and crossbones on the T-shirt. I love that. I just, you are so real, Jane, and this is one of the things which makes you so great. Wow. And the other thing that has made you so great is your relationship with your original voice teacher who remained your voice teacher all through your life, Mr. Joseph Ward. Correct. Yes. Um, Yes, I, I 
auditioned for the Royal Northern College of Music when I was 17 years old, and he heard me then and decided that he would like to teach me. He, he said that he heard a couple of notes in the middle of my voice that gave him indication of how the voice might develop. But to my way of thinking, at 17, I sort of sounded like a boy soprano. It was, you know, sort of hooty, nice, but, but small and, and so on. But he heard something in the voice. And actually, after two weeks of lessons, he said to me, one day you're going to sing Brunhilde and Norma. And uh, I said, oh, is that good? Because I really knew nothing about operas. As you said, I started off as a pianist. So most of my knowledge mm -hmm. was of piano music or orchestral music. And so I was learning all about opera once I got to college. And he told me what to listen to and so on. Um, but right from you know, being 17, right through my entire career, you know, I'm singing as older for the fifth time or whatever, there were still things that he was teaching me and still things I was learning from him. Um, and he just was the most incredible man. He died a couple of years ago now, and that was very sad. He'd moved to Australia a few years ago. Um, so I hadn't seen him for a while, but we kept in touch, of course, all the time. And he was... He really was like a, a father to me. He was he was much more than just a teacher, and we had a really extraordinary relationship. I think, um, and I have everything to him, really. Oh, that's such a beautiful thing to hear. You know, opera singers today have a league of classes and consultants and trainers and teachers at their disposal, and sometimes I feel m many uh, have too many teachers. Um, to have one treasured relationship like this with Joseph Ward in your life, I mean, this really is probably the most grounding relationship you can have. I mean, you never doubted that, did you? No, I didn't. And I, I mean, one of the really helpful things throughout my entire career was that right from the beginning, I don't know why, but I just immediately trusted him. And mm. I knew that whatever he said was right. And so, for example, with the Brunhilde with Scottish Opera, um, the company actually asked me if I'd be interested in uh, understudying it. And so I said, oh, well, I'll talk to Joe. And he said, you know, I'd rather you sing it than understudy it, because if you understudy, you won't get in a rehearsal. If you have to go on, you haven't had that time to sort of sing it into your voice. And the company didn't have a Brunhilde, so I went back and said, well, Joe thinks I should sing it. And they were like, oh, great. Well, then you, that's what's going to happen. Um, so there was never a time when I didn't believe him. And, and I have to say, he was always right. There were so many times he would say, nope. That's not, don't do that. That's not right yet. And I'd say, okay, fine. And I developed that, I think, myself mm -hmm. um, in that if something didn't feel that it was quite ready yet for me to do, I would say no. And there were times when he said to me, okay, that's good. I was asked to sing, in fact, Donna Anna the first, uh, the first time uh, at English National Opera. And I worked on the Irish with him, and he said, this is great. And I said, I just don't feel comfortable singing the ensembles. Just yet, they're too high. He said, then don't do it. If that's your feeling, don't do it. Trust wow. your instincts. Wow. And, and having that sort of it, with me all the way to trust was incredible, was really incredible. And, uh, you know, it's, as you say, these days, people seem to have this team of people behind them. Mm -hmm. And I understand that there's obviously a lot that can be gained from different people in this profession, your agents and your coaches and so on. Um, but that was just not my experience. And, and because I was a pianist, I actually always taught myself my music. So everything I, I sang, I taught myself it at the piano. And so I didn't work with coaches a huge amount, um, only when I'd learned something just to sort of brush things up and so on. Mm -hmm. So it really was kind of me and Joe, and that was, it was wonderful. To me, that sounds like the perfect pairing. And I understand from what I've read that he always coached you with the idea of do not listen to yourself while you sing. Right. Go for the feeling. And this this is, is like the centerpiece of my own teaching and many other great teachers. But 
you know, not so many get to that. And it, this is an essential part of singing the repertoire that you've chosen. It, it really is. And, you know, as he would say, you have to sing the same in the studio as you do on stage in a big opera house. Yeah. You can't change how you sing because you see a big space um, because it's going to be dangerous. You're going to end up pushing and so on. So he always was, yeah, don't listen to yourself. Never listen to yourself. Just, you know, rely on the sensations. And that's how I teach now. And as you say, I think it, it is absolutely the way to go because too many people, I think, get in big theaters and try to give more voice than they really have. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, then they don't last very long. No, you they know? don't. That having a long career and being able to sing healthily the whole time is very important, I think. Oh, it's everything. But Joseph Ward himself was a very fine singer, and I gather that he was a baritone who changed to tenor. And with each, he had an incredible career and an incredible recording career with, with, <laughs> with people like Benjamin Britten and Peter Pierce and the Royal Opera House and... Uh, so uh, how did he make that change to tenor, Jane? Well, he had an incredible career in lots of different areas, actually, and I think it, it went towards making him an incredible teacher. He actually started off as a boy soprano, and he sang in the music halls in England. Um, and on one occasion, he sang, and George Bernard Shaw went and congratulated him on his diction, which he didn't remember much about, but his mother was thrilled, he said. <laughs> Um, and so then after having been a boy soprano for, for many, I mean, several years, actually, he then went as principal baritone at Covent Garden, uh, joined the company the same day as Gwyneth Jones and had you know a good career singing Figaro and all kinds of things. And he did record a lot with Britain. He's on the original recording of Albert Herring as Sid with, with Venture Britain. He was starveling in the original Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, mm -hmm. But I think he felt, and I think other people too, and he was working with certain teachers that he was really always a tenor. And he then became a tenor, and his first job as a tenor was understudying Pavarotti in La Fille de Regiment at the at Covent Garden, which of course has nine top C's in the aria. Right. Um, <clears throat> so he really did sort of dive in at the deep end. He sure did. Um, he, he toured Australia with Joan Sutherland. He sang with Nielsen at Covent Garden. He, he sang with all the greats. And um, then he sort of uh, not exactly lost his nerve, but I think he just didn't want the pressure of that kind of singing anymore. Right. And then he became a pop singer and had this incredible career in mainly in Germany, actually. He made a lot of records out there of a sort of housewife's choice kind of thing. And, and they are phenomenal, some of these recordings because he sings properly with the right style but, yeah. but you still hear this incredible voice well let's listen to one of those right now this is not a housewife's choice i got to tell you right <laughs> now Jane Eaglin this is Joseph Ward singing I am the preacher I am the spokesman 
Jane Eaglin, there's your teacher, right there. Uh, there he is. <laughs> what a top he had. Those notes are incredible. The ring. Yeah. They really are. I mean, he really worked extremely well with sopranos, actually. I think he loved mm-hmm. soprano voice. Mm-hmm. And he knew how to teach you know, people how to sing those high notes. And, and working with Sutherland a lot, he learned a lot from her. But, but he had an incredible technique to be able to do that. I mm-hmm. mean, it was uh, just hearing that. Every time I hear it, it just makes me smile. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I'm so happy you had that grounding. So um, I just have to touch on one thing. When I knew you back in the 90s, I mean, we know that opera singers go through a hell of a lot. You had a brief scare with a thyroid operation. And I know myself, I've had a similar situation. The, the nerves of the vocal cords are, are closely situated to the thyroid. And, but I remember I spoke to you briefly at that time, and you were, like, really unfazed by it all. Did you, did you just have a knowing that things were going to be okay, or is this just a calm aspect of your personality? Um, I think I'm pretty calm anyway. I'm pretty laid back. You know, I'm north of England, last and like pretty much unfazed by most things. Yeah. Um, I actually discovered it while I was doing that Brunhilde with Scottish Opera, and I felt that I was taking in breath. It felt a little labored, and so I, I had tests done and whatever, and they found I had a lump on my thyroid. Um, so pretty much straight after the uh, Brunhilde's, I had surgery and had it removed. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned out to be benign, which was great, of course. Um, but uh, it was kind of, uh, I don't know, I feel softer about those things a little bit. And I, I do remember saying as I went into the surgery, I said to the, the surgeon, I said, okay, uh, here's, here's one of my high notes. And I sang him a high note. And I said, I hope I'll have that when I come out. And he <laughs> said, well, I hope so too, but my first job is to save your life. Wow. And, and you kind of go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, do that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the rest will be what it'll be. And, uh, you know, I did come out and he came. They said, oh, don't speak for like, you know, a week or whatever. And certainly don't sing for a while. But you know how it is with singers. You just know. You just mm-hmm. know if your voice is there or if it isn't. And he came around the next day and said the surgery went well and blah, blah, blah. He said, how long do you think you, it'll be before you know if you can sing? And I said, oh, it's fine. I know it's fine. He said, how do you know? I said, I know it's fine. You could just and, feel. You know, I had to sort of build up my stamina and so on after that for a while, but it was it was no problem at all. Wow, wow! What a lucky break for you. I love this. But your <laughs> life has always been that way, Jane. I mean, really, it, it, it's so interesting how you've come from these humbler beginnings, you know, in Lincoln, and literally raised your game to the top of the field. Um, and one of the characters I want to talk about that you portrayed many, many, many times is Brunhilde. And I want to talk about, I get the impression that you're good friends with Brunhilde. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, we are. I mean, I, I sort of half-jokingly say, you know, the thing about Brunhilde is she, she's a big, fun girl, and that's just like me. Um, <laughs> you know, I, what I love about the character, and of course it's slightly cheating because you get three operas to develop her in, but what I love about her is that she's just so, she's smart and she wants to learn all the time. So, you know, she listens to things that are told to her or she sees things that go on around her and she learns. And that development of the character through the three operas is just so fascinating mm-hmm. for me. And I just always loved um, sort of portraying that and seeing in every performance, can I just figure out a bit more about her? Or can I learn a bit more about this and, and what's going on? And that was just something that I just felt really drawn to, mm-hmm. um, as well as the music. You know, I, I do think that 
Um, singers tend to be drawn towards the music that really suits them. I don't know why that is, but I think it often is the case. And I just always felt as soon as I started to listen to Wagner, I kind of understood it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just how it is. Yeah. There's plenty of things that I've sung which I've found extremely difficult. And I'm certainly not saying that Brynhild is not difficult, but it fit, it fit me vocally and dramatically, I think. And, and so was just something which felt very right for me. Uh, and as I say, plenty of other things did not, but, uh, you know, I did fine. But Brynhilde just felt very much at home for me. So here enters the intuition that we ride on as singers. Would you Would you agree? Yes, I think so. I mean, I always sort of try to think of her, I mean, everyone talks about the ring as always the gods and goddesses and so on, but really it's about relationships between mm-hmm. families and so on. And I mean, the most important part of the Valkyrie is uh, the relationship between her and her father. Mm-hmm. And so many people would come up to me after performance and say, oh my gosh, that just reminded me of me and my father. And, you know, I thought it was all about gods, but it wasn't. It was about a father and daughter and, and sort of saying, you know, do you cry when you do that scene? And I said, well, no, because Brunhilde is not supposed to cry, but I think I'm supposed to make you cry. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, you're mm-hmm. supposed to see that, I think. I think that's what Wagner wanted. Um, so I have to ask this, you know, I know that your father passed away early in your life while you were 10, and he was an avid sportsman, and I realized that you said once that if he had lived, you felt that he would, would really have supported your career as a singer. Does your relationship with Wotan when you're singing Brunhilde have a correlation to the dad maybe you lost early on? I mean, it's hard to say. I don't consciously think of that, certainly, but but I do sort of feel... Um, you know, I, I obviously losing my father when I was 10, there's only, you haven't had that much time with him and you were still a child. So you, I never got to know him really as an uh, adult, obviously. Um, <clears throat> but I do think that he was very supportive in what I did even when I was young then. I'd already started singing a little bit um, and he supported that and was very proud of the things that I did. And in his way, he was a performer. He, he'd been a sportsman, and mm-hmm. he then founded all the local soccer leagues in, in Lincolnshire, where I came from. And, and actually, to this day, there's a Ron Eagland Cup in his honor, which is a sort of the Super Bowl of Lincolnshire, if you like. Um, and so I, I think, you know, he was a good after-dinner speaker, all those kinds of things. And I think he would have appreciated the performance um, that I did mm-hmm. and how that sort of went to a different level. Um, but I don't consciously think of that when I, you know, think of Brunhilde and, and Wotan. But there may be something subconscious that's there that, that makes it a strong relationship. And makes it stronger song. You know, Jane... It's such a delight talking to you about all of these things. I mean, it's just fantastic. And I've got to say, so far, this has been a great ride of an interview. And it's so good that I'm going to keep you around for part two that we will hear next Tuesday at 9 a.m. And, Jane, in the meantime, I guess we need to go out with a little meatloaf. And so like a bat out of hell, we are out of here, Jane Eaglin. (laughs) Please stick around and let's do this again. Okay, that sounds good. Everyone, please go to her recordings. And, and I hope you visit Center Stage with PamelaCoon.com for more information on my show. And in the meantime, this is Pamela Coon, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage. <laughs>